Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Timmins Mayor Michelle Boileau. First elected as a counselor in 2018, she's a born and raised Northerner, proud Franco-Ontarian. She has a range of different experience in the post-secondary sector, and at only 34, she represents thoughtful generational change with a focus on serious long-term impact rather than short-term election cycles. And while she also ran as a federal liberal candidate in the 2019 election, she's taken a positive and nonpartisan approach to her work. Now, this is the second in a series we'll continue focused on the civic leadership we need. Our last episode with Mayor Amy Martin covered some of the issues faced in southwestern rural Ontario and Norfolk County. And this conversation with Mayor Boileau is squarely focused on the needs of her northern municipality, Timmins. Michelle, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you are not new to politics. You were elected in 2018 as a, as a councillor. You've been a federal liberal candidate, but you are now mayor of Timmins, but you're also only 34. So walk me through how you came to politics in the first place. Yes, um, it wasn't a very thought out kind of leap into politics uh, by any means, Um, though I was reminded when I decided to run uh, uh, for municipal council uh, in 2018 that I have always been somewhat involved in politics and it, it like I said, I was reminded during that campaign that I had actually already dabbled in politics a little bit, having been the prime minister of our student parliament in high school. And uh, I, I guess I've always had somewhat of an interest. And, uh, you know, I was always the kid that would read the newspaper first thing in the morning while eating my bowl of Lucky Charms. And quite literally, it was Lucky Charms every day for <laughs> three or four years for a while there. So, you know, and, and reading the news and trying to just to kind of keep up with what was going on in the world. Um, at that time, it was really, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan uh, had just started. And that's really when I started to to follow, you know, kind of international affairs and and domestic affairs as well. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't your typical kid by any means. If I came across, you know, question period <laughs> while just kind of flipping through the channels, I would linger on it probably longer than yeah, most definitely not normal the then time, right? so, <laughs> i don't so even I like watching I'm, question period and i'm and i'm in the house of commons and here it is. <laughs> Sorry. i'll admit i don't watch anymore <laughs> there's something intriguing about it when i was uh, when i was younger um so i guess there was always an interest definitely and always you know made a point to kind of keep up to date with what was going on um so i always interested more at the macro level than than most um that being said i never expected to go into politics I never even expected to, you know, have a career kind of within the political sphere, you know, being a staffer or anything. Um, I went to school to study second language teaching, to teach French as a second language. Um, I did realize by the end of that bachelor's degree that I didn't actually want to be a teacher, though I was very passionate about education um, and started to already get a sense that I might be more interested in educational administration, educational leadership. And so already, you know, that kind of uh, administration and leadership and, you know, those kind of aspects were were already interesting me a little bit more than, than just the teaching. So I took some time, I traveled, you know, went and volunteered, um, decided to do a master's degree in educational and social, social research. Again, realized I didn't necessarily want to be the researcher, but I was very interested in, um, in how research can inform policy. And so I guess it was kind of just a national, uh, natural progression as I kind of worked through my, my interests and in various career opportunities. But uh, uh, really kind of just before that 2018 election, I was uh, working for a community college 
I, in my role with the, with the college, you know, I was always very involved with, um, in the community. It involved a lot of community engagement, uh, partnership building. Um, so I had a good sense of, you know, what was going on in town, not only in the city of Timmins, but uh, it was, it was more of a regional position. So I was very familiar with, you know, what was going on in kind of smaller town, Northern Ontario, what the realities were, um, you know, what was so great about our, our region and, and the towns that are in Northern Ontario, but also, uh, you know, what challenges we're facing. And back in 2018, I, you know, you could, you could already see the opioid crisis coming. We could already see housing shortage happening. But it wasn't being talked about by our local politicians. You know, it was the issues that were being discussed were really superficial, in my opinion, at the time. And uh, so when this election uh, was coming up, the 2018 election, um, I had just kind of mentioned, you know, threw it out there to some friends that, you know, I might decide to run uh, for council and uh, was overwhelmed by the reaction I got by my, my you know, closed network. Um, and so just kind of kept going with it as they pushed me along. And, uh, yeah, I was pleased to see that... Uh, what I had to say was resonating with people. So, well, it's nice. It's also interesting to look back and say, yeah, I guess I was always interested in this. I never thought though that I would end up here. I yeah. definitely remember having a similar experience after winning a nomination and people were asking me, well, have you always thought about politics? And I went, no. Although actually now that you think about it, I was oh. <laughs> in high school and I lost miserably for city council in Kingston once upon a time when I wanted to learn more about politics and I learned everything not to do. Um, but you, you clearly have always been passionate about policy making and policy debate. Although when you describe reading the newspaper as you're growing up, I would pick up the newspaper and immediately go to the crossword section. (laughs) I, I, I respect the interest in policy from an early age. I, I, what I also have an interest in, I think maybe we, we share an approach to politics in some ways. Like obviously we both ran as liberals in 2019 and there's probably ideological, ideological similarities <laughs> there, but I was, I was fascinated. I was reading about that election and a tough riding to win. Charlie Angus, someone I've actually worked well with across party lines since 2015. But you in 2019 said you weren't going to criticize Charlie Angus, the new Democrat. You actually said you admired him and it's politicians like him who inspired you to go into politics. That is a very odd thing for someone to say in politics in a competitive environment in the middle of an election. I think it's also a pretty refreshing thing to hear someone say. And do you think that your approach to politics municipally or your approach in that election, did you know at the time that it was different from what you saw around you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was part of why I felt compelled to go into politics, I suppose, um, because I wanted to be working on, you know, making the kind of change that we had to see happen. Um, And that's what I was focused on was just improving uh, our quality of life here, improving the well-being of the people living here. Um, And and so that's what I was focused on. And um, so I, I guess I didn't want to compromise, you know, my, my values and my priorities for the sake of a campaign and for winning an election. Um, And when I said that I admire politicians like Charlie Ingus, it's really because I felt and and I had witnessed that he was really doing it, um, you know, out of the goodness of his heart, because he cared about, you know, the situation that people were living in here, and he cared about trying to improve it and trying to give uh, the people of Timmins uh, in the the wider uh, riding 
um, just the best, you know, the best opportunities, the best chances possible um, and a fair chance, um, something that we weren't necessarily seeing being this far north and isolated. And so obviously there's a lot of things working against us. And, and the fact that Huey's tried to to fight for the people of Timmins James Bay was, was, you know, impressive to me. And um, I mean, anyone who could be in public service for as long as he has been, you know, to me, that should be admired. Um, and, and, and to do it, cleanly right um so he's always been a politician that's that's kind of kept it clean and so i again that's admirable um and i think that that approach definitely resonated well with voters during this mayoral election um i was you know very consciously trying to focus on you know a positive message an optimistic message i felt i knew that people were just looking for any reason to hold on to hope because, you know, things have gotten quite dire here. And so um, rather than criticizing what other candidates, you know, weren't doing or weren't saying, or I just wanted to concentrate on on what I was proposing and what I had to offer. And that's all I, I put out there. And, and it was really well received. So, And you can respect your opponent while also saying that I'm here to make a difference too. And I think I can make an even bigger difference and hear the things that I, I care about. And you can, you can lift up the conversation rather than tearing your opponent down. So I, I think that's right. You mentioned a few times though, about wanting to stand up for Northern issues and let's walk through what some of those issues are for you and your community. I, I know you've written about healthcare and housing and, and population growth. There's lots of different places we could go. You obviously mentioned the opioid crisis as well. Where, where do you want to start? Oh my goodness. So where do you start? Um, it's, oh, it's, it's so complex. There are so many different things kind of at play here right now. And um, I think historically for far too long, um, Timmins and the rest of Northern Ontario was under-resourced, underfunded. Um, I, I won't say forgotten, but but almost, <laughs> you know, um, I, I suppose more of an afterthought. Uh, and so, um, we're seeing the result of that now. I really think that that's what it is, is that, um, you know, there's there's been a lack of resources uh, uh, in the area. And when I th- say resources, I mean health health resources, mental health uh, supports and resources. Um, and so that with so many other factors, you know, just compounded uh, to create this, this circumstance that we're in now. And so we're, we're, we're dealing with... Um, the opioid crisis, like you said, in 2021, we had the highest rate of overdose, opioid-related overdose fatalities in all of Ontario. Um, We have one of the highest rates of homelessness per capita in all of Ontario. Um, We're talking about a municipality of just over 40,000 people. So it's it's quite poignant because it becomes very visible. um, And also these kind of issues end up impacting pretty much everyone, you know, right. Um, so if not you, uh, you know, if, if it's not affecting you directly or immediately, it's affecting someone, you know, um, so it's, it's just becomes that much more, uh, you know, significant of an issue. So mental health addictions, uh, and of course, housing, like our housing stock is ages old. Uh, we, we inherited, um, you know, a housing stock, I'm thinking social housing, um, that was built in the 60s, 70s, some in the 80s, and hasn't been touched since. So our our housing stock is just deteriorating. We haven't seen anything new 
be built, uh, you know, in, in recent history. So um, we're facing extreme housing shortage. And of course, you know, we're seeing population decline. We're seeing uh, youth out migration. When you just look at the labor force and what's available to here to try to, to build ourselves back up, um, we're lacking there. So there's so many different things that we need to be concentrating on. Interconnected in so many different ways. Oh, yeah. Well, is it starting with the opioid crisis, though? I mean, it's not just Tim, it's Northern Ontario is deeply impacted, but it also mental health and addictions has come up in my travels across the province in London, in, in Windsor. It, it comes up every in every community, regardless of geography. Obviously, it is more acute when you look at the numbers and, and what you've just described. It is most acute in Timmins, more acute across Northern Ontario. Is it a matter of beds and treatment support? Is it a matter of making sure there are safe consumption sites? Where, where is the need from provincial, federal governments to step in and help a, a, a place like Timmins? Yeah, so quite honestly, it was everything. We needed everything. We didn't have the structure in place. We had some treatment programs that were mostly just focused on, on alcohol use, Um hardly anything for for drug addiction and and, and uh, withdrawal management um so we've in the past few years we've honestly been building from the ground up trying to build the structure that's needed to support people that are struggling with mental health and addiction issues um and so uh yes we needed more emergency withdrawal management uh, beds which we we were able to to get here in Timmins over the past few years we we're able to to go from zero to 20 beds in our local hospital now, our district hospital. Um, it, and, and absolutely, in the last few years, in 2021, when we were seeing, you know, the rates of, of uh, opioid-related overdoses um, go up, it, it became obvious that the need for a safe consumption site um, was, was acute here as well, because uh, people were dying, and, and not just on the streets. And often we say they were dying on the streets, but they were they were dying in homes, in residences, behind closed doors, and they were being found by loved ones. And it was having a very traumatic impact on the wider society, right? And the wider community. And so we had to just put an end to that. And so as a municipality, we actually invested in a temporary uh, safe consumption site. And we've just submitted an application a few weeks ago for a, a permanent uh, site. And so I know that's moving along quite well. So, um, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed because it's it's definitely made a difference in the past few years having a safe consumption site here in Timmins. Um, and it's it's been, um, you know, it's allowed for a clearer path to recovery for people who are struggling, right? It's been that kind of... That I'm glad you say that. I'm glad you say that because I worry. Now, on the one hand, this deep tragedy has caused the politics to change. So now we are able to talk about treating drug use as a health issue in a more serious way. We are able to talk about protecting public safety by delivering public health in a more serious way. We can point to the fact police chiefs, medical experts are all calling for treating drug use as a health issue fundamentally and moving away from incarceration and criminalization. And yet there's still conservative politics that want to pit harm reduction against treatment when obviously what you've just said is harm reduction keeps people alive while they are at a moment where they may not be ready to get treatment yet. And so there's a continuum of care. And eventually the goal is to get people into treatment. But for the time being, we've got to save lives and 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 make sure people are in the right place. And That's treatment right. obviously has to be ready on demand when, when they're ready. But pitting these ideas against each other is, is, an, is an unfortunate political fiction. 
Yeah, and we've had those conversations locally um, because, as I said, the municipality invested the first million dollars um, for this site, right? And so it was, it was you know, a, a well-debated topic, <laughs> let's say. Uh, but it was that. It was making it clear that it's not one or the other, it's both. We need both. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll never argue that we just, we need more treatment, absolutely. Um, but this is, like I said, it's, it's, it's a path, it offers a path to treatment. And we've seen the numbers, we've seen the referral to counseling services and to treatment services. And, you know, that's happening, which is great. But what it also allows for, not only does it keep people alive, um, but it allows for access to, uh, you know, basic primary care, meaning that we're reducing the stress on our emergency departments. And we're reducing the amount of uh, emergency response calls that are, you know, that were being caused um, due to this, this, um, uh, this crisis. And so um, we're seeing it alleviate a lot of pressures on other systems. So it's absolutely important. It's but it's just one piece to the puzzle that we're we're trying to put together to to address this issue, right? And one big piece of the puzzle is is the labor shortage on the medical professional side. You, I think, recently have said Timmins needs fifteen family physicians, twenty five medical specialists. We can talk about early childhood educators too, because eighty was the number which, which which seemed high, and 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 obviously there's an acute need there. But a- access to primary care also comes up in every community and and yet it is also a more acute issue in northern ontario and you it's connected in many ways to the challenges in our in emergency departments but standalone people will receive better care if they have access to a family phys- physician or a nurse practitioner you feel that still quite acutely in timmins and and that's an area where both levels of government hopefully through this bilateral health accord and more money that will be a priority issue hopefully for a community like yours Absolutely. It's, um, you know, it, just in the work that I've been doing, I, I also managed employment service most recently before uh, being elected um, to, as mayor. And so it, just in that work, you know, I was, I, it was obvious to me that the lack of access to medical care was contributing to the homelessness rates, was contributing to, you know, mental health and addiction issues, because I, I had clients that would come in and say that I'm still on a wait list for an MRI. I don't know when I'm going to be able to get it. But until then, I can't go to my job as a crossing guard and I'm at risk of losing my apartment. And it just became so clear to me that the correlation between lack of access to to medical care and homelessness. And it was it was obvious in that one client that would never have imagined himself being at risk of homelessness. Right. Um, And also, especially in northern Ontario and Timmins, where, you know, our main economic drivers are the mining sector, the forestry sector, um, very labor intensive industries. Um, so it, you know, it's hard on, on people's bodies here. And so people are in pain and chronic pain. And if they don't have access to the kind of care they need to be able to manage that pain, they end up, you know, kind of self-treating. And so I, I, I honestly believe that that's contributing to, um, to the issues here as well and, and, and how significant they are compared to the rest of the province. And you mentioned a couple of times, just when you piece the puzzle together, there's no silver bullet, but there's this comprehensive approach that is required. Housing looms incredibly large in this. And also an issue that comes up everywhere, of course, especially from young people. But what work are you able to do locally now? I want to I ask you also about to what extent the province is being helpful by dumping Bill 23 on your municipality, among others. But you've talked about attract the need to attract skilled tradespeople to incentivize housing development. Are, are you able, is the municipality, are, are you able to increase housing starts? Is that a reality or, or is it still a struggle? 
I mean, it's a struggle because we know that the cost to build is just so much greater in Northern Ontario than it is in exactly. Southern Ontario, yeah. right? The cost to get materials here, um, the cost of fuel is so much greater. And we, we briefly spoke before um, in, before our recording, the cost of fuel is so much more expensive in Northern Ontario. And so especially when your construction season is shorter, you're going to have to heat, you know, your, your construction site a lot longer. And so that, that costs add up. And so it's just not feasible. It's not a, an attractive environment in which developers would want to come and, and try to make a profit, right? Because there's no profit to be made for a private sector developer at the moment in this current environment. Um, and so quite honestly, as a municipality, we're starting to see that it's going to have to be city-led. Like many other things and like all the other issues that we've already touched on, um, in the the past few years, especially during the pandemic, it became quite obvious that no one was coming to save us. There was no additional funding coming that we were just going to have to start doing this work ourselves. Um, so I'm quite proud of our community because we all got to work and we coordinated services and, and we've been making a lot of really great things happen. Um, but it's like all those other things, housing is going to be one of them. We're going to have to lead the development and, and try to make it as enticing as possible. And so just as recently as yesterday, Municipal Council, we were talking about so how much do we invest in, you know, getting land ready for development and um, and what does that look like for us? What kind of role do we play in that? Because we have to start, we have to kickstart, you know, this this kind of housing um, development. So um, hopefully we're and, and similar to the safe consumption site where you take an early municipal lead and it shouldn't require municipal leadership. You'd, you'd, you'd hope to see provincial leadership and, and federal leadership and empowering municipalities to do these things. But but one would hope. In similar fashion, you would take a leadership role in housing and then other levels of government would come in with funding to say, thanks for putting the approach together. Thanks for starting with the early stage funding. We're going to come in and help you realize this in full. Yeah, and that's what we're hoping for because it, it it hasn't gone unnoticed when we've done it in other areas, and so we're hoping that that'll be the case here. But uh, because right now current funding programs at both levels of government just aren't sufficient for construction in Northern Ontario, and they say that there's some capital funds available for, uh, you know, you mentioned early childhood education. Uh, you know, there's capital funds available to create new childcare spots. At ninety dollars a square feet, we're not building anything in Northern Ontario. Right. The, estimated cost for you know a square foot in in, in a place like Timmins is four hundred dollars so it, it's a drop in the bucket what we actually need to be able to actually you know see some of that sure. and a very good reminder when you're writing programs designed to be applicable everywhere they have to take into account local context and and, and differences I, I even when I'm reading your writing in your municipal race talking about the need to address the housing crisis but on the other hand also needing to attract new people and, and population growth and that you know population growth has stagnated and needs to attract more people to come to your community. These things are also at odds with one another. How do you balance the need for population growth with the lack of housing? And so if you don't address them simultaneously, you're not going to be able to address them successfully. Exactly. And 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 we get pressures from from you know cross-sectoral, it's coming from the post-secondary institutions that are being really successful in their international recruitment, especially, but now there's a need for housing. And then um, you know, just today I was we were hearing a presentation from a junior mining company in the area, and they've got a lot of really good news, you know, a lot of really good potential development happening uh, here in the area. There's you know, an extreme need for housing for what they want to see happen here. And so you've got all these other kind of stakeholders coming at you asking for more housing. And so it's, what do we do with that? And and so essentially, yeah, it's going to be collaborating, coordinating our efforts and, and trying to make it happen all together. So. How real, you mentioned the junior mining company, increasingly 
climate action, serious, credible action means jobs. And it means jobs in Northern Ontario. Mining is, is an obvious example. Is that a reality? Do people see that? Is there a change in the conversation, the way people think and talk about climate change, knowing that there is job creation that is that is going to be a reality in their communities? Um, I don't know if that's so much part of the conversation here because we've traditionally been a mining town. Um, and so I think whether or not it was to help advance, you know, the green economy and, and the kind of climate friendly technological advancements, I don't think that's that's really you know, the driving force behind the community getting behind these new, like, mining operations and development. It's just the fact that this is what we've always done. Um, well, not, not for getting behind the mining operations, but for thinking about climate action differently. That if, oh, now a federal government or a provincial government is talking about delivering serious climate action and EV incentives or EV char- charging infrastructure or battery manufacturing, these things, once, you know, you, you might think at in the discourse 10 years ago that maybe, oh, you know, these politicians talking about an energy transition, these politicians talking about green jobs, that's not real. Does this make it more real? Yes. Yeah. Thank you for the, the that clarification. Absolutely. Um, we do see what opportunities that could mean for for the city of Timmins and for Northern Ontario, because we hear it all the time. And especially with the current provincial government, they're talking about how we have what they want here. Right now, Conservatives conservative. are talking about the jobs related to climate action. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Change so the conversation the, in a serious way. Yeah. yeah. And it also has people now questioning, you know, how, what's our current capacity to, to be a player in that, an active player in that. And, you know, we talk about uh, all these EV battery powered vehicles and, um, it's, uh, you know, people are questioning, well, we don't even have charging stations in Timmins. Like, so how could that even become a thing here for us? And right. uh, so it's, it's, it's changing people's kind of it's priority good. list. Yeah. Which is encouraging. I, I had a question. My, my last question about Northern priorities specific to, to Timmins. I, I was also reading about infrastructure, but I really don't know how these two projects translate into work that's already happening or work that needs to happen but the connecting link in the Timmins Victor M Power Airport, what what it walk me through the necessity of those infrastructure projects or or others? Like what what is Timmins looking for when it comes to infrastructure? Um, yes, yeah, so transportation infrastructure uh, is definitely key for us at the moment. Uh, again, if the world wants what we have here, we have to make sure that they can access it. <laughs> um, and also that if, if we're going to see the kind of population growth that we've been talking about and that we, we know that we need, uh, we have to make sure that people could get to Timmins and then move around comfortably, you know, within Timmins. And so again, that's somewhere where there's been a lack of investment for, for far too long. And um, something like the connecting link, we have the longest and most complex connecting link in the province. And that was downloaded to us. Um, And uh, we haven't had the means to be able to maintain that. And when I say the most complex, it means we have the most um, like complex infrastructure under our, our thoroughfare that's going through the city. Right. And that infrastructure was put there over a hundred years ago by the first mines that, you know, set up camp here. Um, and so as we've been doing some of the repair work, like we are actually finding some of our, our main water lines that were completely deteriorating, that it's like amazing that they were still 
pushing water through <laughs> these wow. pipes, right? They're like made of clay and just disappearing. So, um, so it's so important, not only for the transportation aspect, but also all that linear infrastructure that we have below the surface that, that needed to be fixed and, and to be able to support our current, you know, community, our current, uh, uh, capacity, I guess, and then also to be able to grow it, like we have to be able to fix that. And so definitely the connect and link and, and and the support that we've seen from government on that has been so important because it's not nothing we would have been able to get done. It's unfortunate that it took so long um, to, to, to come to us because we did have to get started with the work without any kind of support, which was extremely um, difficult and, and taxing on our, our residents. Um, so and a then few examples of municipal leadership that ultimately have translated into other governments stepping up in, in different ways. Yeah. Great. <laughs> it, 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 it shouldn't, as I say, it shouldn't take that kind of municipal leadership, but I'm glad to see it. When it comes to another northern issue, but it's not specific to Timmins, it's really, I've met Franco-Ontarians in, in different parts of the province in eastern and, and northeastern Ontario. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of who you are, and it's a big part of many people's lives across northeastern Ontario. And how important is it to your politics today? Um, it's very important. Um, and I think that people knew it was important when I was elected, which is relieving because they won't be surprised by anything I do moving forward. But no, I mean, to the point where, you know, apparently a lot of the city staff, just as the election results came in, started questioning whether or not they had to start looking for another job because they weren't bilingual. But I haven't, I'm not that extreme, um, but I'll definitely encourage them to take in French as second language classes. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's, It's been important to me because um, I recognize that not only am I representing and working for, you know, the city of Timmins, but, you know, I was elected to represent the Francophone community of Timmins, too. And I never forget that. Um, But it's part of my heritage. It's, you know, it's part of my upbringing. It's given me tremendous opportunities. The fact that I'm fluently bilingual. Um, and so I just want to be able to harness that because if you gave me opportunities personally, just think what it could mean for our municipality if we really harnessed our, our bilingualism here. Um, and so, and, and another thing is when we're talking about population growth and, and, and needing to attract more talent, needing to attract working age population here in the city, I think it gives us a bit of an edge that, you know, we have such a, an important Francophone population here. Um, you know, just under 50% of the population is, is bilingual. And so, um, you know, it gives us that advantage that we could actually attract French-speaking talent from all over the world, all over the country, all over the province. Um, so I, I, you know, I like to remind people that we have that edge. So let's use it, and um, because you can live and work and play in French and Timmins, um, so it's a great place to come if you want to improve your your English, right? So um, trying to find ways to be able to promote that, um, both internally and externally. Um, has always been something that I've, I've, I've been focused on as well. Um, but it, but that being said, you know, with our declining population, we're seeing a, the rate of French speakers decline at faster rates, unfortunately. Um, and so it's it's incredibly important for me that we attract uh, working age uh, French speaking talent 
um, just to be able to maintain the level of service that you can receive in the city of Timmins in French. And so, you know, a study came out a few years ago that shows that by 2026, Timmins would have to attract three to 4,000 French speakers um, just to maintain that same level, not to even be able to offer more French services when you go into stores and restaurants and banks and stuff. Um, so it's something that we need to be focused on because if, you know, we want to make sure that our parents are able to receive, you know, their long-term care and their medical care as they age in their first language in French. Uh, we have to make sure there are people that are there to support them and that we're attracting PSWs and we're attracting nurses and we're attracting, uh, you know, dietary aids uh, that can that can speak, you know, to, to our population in French as well. So it, it's incredibly important, um, but it's something that I, I feel like sometimes we take for granted. So I think that, you know, my role in all of this is just reminding people what kind of economic opportunity, you know, really harnessing uh, the, our French community here could be. It's interesting, a few different times in this conversation, you have talked about taking action today for payoff far down the road. And it's a follow on from in a campaign because I was reading your messaging and how you were framing your politics. And I found it interesting. You were talking about future focused leadership. And it, it reminds my, my wife, for example, is a she's doing her PhD at U of T right now, but she is a chef and a researcher and, and she's very much focused on encouraging chefs to especially in larger institutions to change how they design their menu to make it more health focused and i personally think when we look at the total healthcare system if we invested in healthy eating especially in kids but also in seniors care and long-term care and in hospitals we would have healthier populations it would, it would ultimately cost less in the long run but as a politician you'd have to be willing to spend some money now to have payoff far enough down the road where you're never going to be in office when when that payoff happens. And politics is not well suited to those kinds of decisions. Politics is suited to make decisions now for political benefit now. And yeah. the way you framed it, and even the way you've, you've described some of your priorities, that focus on future payoff, despite it might not be of political benefit to you to make decisions in the way that you're making them now, but that future focus is incredibly important. That's right. Yeah. Um, and just on the nutrition piece, remind me to tell you at a later date about our food steps program that again was locally driven, <laughs> um, that we're actually trying to get some permanent funding for so that we could have it ongoing, but that's a, a program and a nutrition program that we've um, started under our um, district social service administration board. And so our social service system manager, um, we've kind of, it's completely out of our purview, but we see just the advantage that healthy eating habits bits in, you know, our family uh, units and our, our senior units um, could have, the, you know, the benefits could have. So anyway, we'll talk about food stuff another time because <laughs> um, your wife might be interested in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yes. Um, but so, yeah, that approach, I mean, it, it might not be popular and, and it might not get me reelected, you know, in, in a few years from now. But um, quite frankly, I'm fine with that because I have an opportunity to start making some change now while I'm in this mayor's seat. Um, and so if there's anything I could do that could benefit my daughter's life growing up in Timmins, I'll try to do that now. And I think that um, it's very much in line with local Indigenous values, right? To think about the seven generations um, that will come after you and that every action that you take um, should, you know, you can't forget that it's going to have an impact on seven generations after you. Um, and that, so that's kind of, you know, what I'm what I'm coming at this with is that, um, and, and quite honestly, again, it's 
the situation we're in today is because politicians in the past wouldn't see beyond the four-year election cycle and right. wouldn't make those intergenerational decisions or investments that that they should have made uh, to just improve our life now. And so that's why we see a lot of the issues that we're seeing now. And so if there's anything that we could do that can improve that, whether it gets me reelected or not, I'm going to do it. And I'm, going, I'm hoping that I, that's I respect that too. We're, we're there to do a job, not to get reelected. That's uh, right. You mentioned your young daughter. Now... You had a very nasty experience where you were on maternity leave and you were a counsel at the time and someone sent you a very misogynistic email saying, I just thought that you should know that this is one of the reasons why women have no place in politics or the workplace for that matter. Good on you. Have more kids and never come back. Your kids are more important. It is an incredibly nasty and destructive way of looking at the world. It's also in some cases, a pretty mild mannered email in comparison to what some women receive in politics, which is even more atrocious. But the idea that you somehow couldn't be a mother and also mayor, the idea that, you know, I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old, like, should I be doing this job? And also, can I be a good dad and husband at the same time? I, I hope so. I think so. Uh, representation does matter. And do you find in the course of your work, you're 34, you are a young mother, I think it's a two-year-old that you have. You, you know, were on the job already as counselor when 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 you had your your young daughter. Do you? How important is that to you to to show this can be done? I can be a young woman, a young mother, and I can also do this job and do it effectively. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so important. And I think often when I start to get the mom guilt because you know I have evening meetings and I'm not home to put her to bed and stuff like that. It's, you know, I remind myself or others remind me that I'm I'm just being a, a great example for my daughter and that she will see me in this, you know, in this work, in this position. And um, we'll never have a question, a, a doubt in her mind that this is something that she could be doing, too, which I think is is extremely important. Right. Um, and, and part of it is, you know, when I first started painting, when I was first starting to read that newspaper and started paying attention to politics and stuff like that, um, the mayor, the city of Timmins at the time was actually female. Um, and again, I didn't realize it at the time and I didn't realize it in the years, you know, to follow. But as soon as I was elected, I remembered that, you know, I realized that that's probably part of why I felt like I could do this because a female mayor just was always a thing for me, or at least it was once I started paying attention to politics. So, um, it, but that being said, I was actually quite surprised during the campaign, how many people had already forgotten about our first female mayor, which, you know, and it had only been about 25 years ago. Well, I guess yeah, it's been a while now. And, but um, so there were, you know, a generation of voters that never knew a female mayor and the older generations actually so much time had passed that had forgotten. And often I'd go to the doors and be like, Oh yeah, how great would that be? You'd be the first female mayor. And I'd be like, no, actually we've already had one, but um, it's, it had been far too long, you know, for, for people to forget. <laughs> um, so I think it was really important what I was doing. But um, like you said, that that representation matters and it's important for not only men to see that we can do this job too and that, you know, it's important we have a lot to contribute to the conversation. But I found in doing this that it's actually really important for other women to see. And even just when I was starting to think about running for council and I would mention it to my mom even, um, you know, the question I would get often was, well, why now? Like, why don't you wait until you have a family and, you know, your kids are older and you're kind of more towards the end of your career as if a woman couldn't contribute, you know, um, unless she was more experienced and at a later stage in her life and had raised her kids. And um, so, 
it was really important even just for women of a certain generation to see, you know, me kind of take on this challenge and, and, and try it out. And, um, and, you know, I say all the time that we should just be encouraging more women to get into politics, to, to, to try for positions of leadership. Um, so if not you, like make sure that you're telling a woman in your life that you think can do a good job, that she should try and that you'll be there to help her because we don't get told that very often. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been important. And actually I remember my, our first council meeting when I was elected, uh, we were three women to be elected to that council. Um, and, uh, there was one of my fellow counselors, she had, this was, you know, her third or fourth term and she had only, it had been the only female for such a long time. And, um, after that first council meeting, having two other women around the table with her, she made a comment after, you know, the meeting adjourned, like, wow, what a difference that makes, like having other women around. And so I didn't even realize, you know, how much of a change it makes when there are more women, but just that comment, just under her breath, like very much to herself. Um, it was really telling, it was really telling of the experiences that she had gone through and what she had to kind of work against. Right. Um, and, it's, during- and it's interesting because it's, it's, that representation matters to her and 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 and, and rightly yeah, so yeah. and and there are unquestionably going to be young women who in the same way you saw the mayor 25 years ago and they're going to see you now and that will change how they view politics in, in a positive way that i was also the think part, if i may interrupt sorry that was the yeah. best part of my campaign was being stopped by like 10 to 12 year old girls who were recognizing me from what I was putting out there, social media and the posters. And yeah. I didn't have my face on my election signs, but somehow they knew who Michelle Bolo was, right? Um, to the point where I'd be in stores. And, you know, one time I had a woman ask me, excuse me, are you Michelle Bolo? And I'm like, yes. She's like, oh, yeah, you were right to her 10-year-old daughter. She's like, my daughter recognized you. So the mother, who was actually a voter, didn't recognize me and didn't know who the mayoral candidates were or anything. But her 10-year-old daughter had been paying attention and was engaged in that municipal election. And so I thought it was so important. And towards the end of the campaign, I told myself, like, if I don't win, that's okay, because I made an impact still on, you know, this younger generation of, of girls. And so that that's been the best part. And then just hearing the feedback and having people stop me now and say, you know, how their daughters are still following what I'm doing. And they're that's still amazing. That's, that, that's, that's amazing. Okay. And, and I would, all, I would add that I also think it's really important. I mean, one doesn't need to have kids in one's life, but I think it is also very important that you are able to showcase that you're able to do both. And I think it's whether you're a man or a woman, I think it's very important to say to society at large, we can be serious people in our professional lives, including in politics and especially in politics, one would hope as we serve our communities, but also we care about our families and, and we can do both. And if we don't create space and we don't show that we can do both, then I think we do a disservice to, to politics ultimately. And, and, and we leave it to people who we don't see the generational change that we ought to see in our politics sometimes. So uh, th- thank you for the time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, for the work that you're doing. I, I look forward to seeing how more of those municipal leadership initiatives lead to provincial and federal action. And I, I, I hope we have a chance to work together at some point. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, Nate. I really appreciate this opportunity to chat and it's such a good conversation. I look forward to future conversations as well. Thanks. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I really appreciate Michelle's approach to politics, and it was good to talk through common issues to municipalities across the province and country, as well as acute issues in northern Ontario. I hope these conversations with younger civic leaders provide you with the same sense of optimism that they leave me with. 
As always, please leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. Our next episode will be with Jerry Butts, and we'll subsequently be joined by Jen Kiesmat and David Miller. You can reach us at info at bey8.ca with any guest suggestions you might have. And otherwise, until next time.